Okay, so we are continuing with our sermon series. We've had a bit of a delay because I was unwell last week. Thank you for your thoughts and prayers. I'm on the mend, feeling a bit better, still a bit tired, but looking forward to um, continuing with the series. So we're thinking about what it means to be distinctive, what it means to live holy lives in our modern society. And we're looking specifically at how Christians are distinctive in the areas of marriage, sex, homosexuality, singleness, and abortion. Now, I'm very aware that topics like these can, can be quite difficult for us and can raise a lot of questions. Uh, and perhaps um, things come up in our minds and we, we think, uh, I need to know more about this, or I don't understand this, or why does this, the Bible say this? So, if you do have a question from the sermon today, or from the sermons on marriage that we've done in the past, or for any questions linked to the series, then you can use Slido um, to ask your question. Um, I've chosen to use Slido because if you want to be, you can be anonymous. Um, and the questions come to me and me only, so no one else will see your question. You can use the QR code with your phone now, or you can go to slido.com, and when you're prompted for a code, you use the word distinctive. Uh, if you uh, want to ask a question later, <coughs> and you forget, the details of the Slido are in WhatsApp, the church WhatsApp, and also they're in the Argyle news sheet that was emailed out on Friday. Well, in our life group last week, um, the person who was leading said to us, please share with the group what's been on your mind this past week. And I said, sex. <laughs> That's been on my mind. <laughs> because it has. Because I've been studying for the whole week what the Bible says about sex. And that's what we're going to be thinking about in our sermon. In fact, in our, we're going to have two sermons on sex as part of this series. Now, why are we having this focus on sex? A few reasons. First of all, there's so much confusion in society around sex and what it's for and so on. And um, it's uh, important that we look carefully and understand clearly what the Bible says. Also, we need to think about what God says about sex because it's so powerful, isn't it? can be very damaging if we're not careful, can control us if we're not careful. And we also need to focus on what the Bible says about it, because deviating away from God's sexual ethic is just so common in society, but sadly in the church as well. As Christians, our sexual ethics and practice can often be a major way in which we're not holy, and we're not distinctive. And we're not different from the world, but it, we don't want it to be like that. So we need to come back to and understand and embrace what God says, what his plan is for sex. Now, British culture is not particularly good at talking sensibly about sex. We tend to go one of three ways. We either get really giggly and uh, um, start making jokes about it. Or we're just so embarrassed that we never talk about it at all, ever. Or we talk about it in an inappropriate way. I wonder what it's like for your culture. Or I wonder whether it, in your family 
it was ever raised or discussed or talked about as a subject. Perhaps it's a bit of a shock to you to have the pastor stand up here and talk about sex. Um, but we have to remember that sex is in the Bible. It's actually mentioned quite a lot in the Bible. God's plan for sex, but also the Bible doesn't shy away from mentioning lots of examples of how sin has affected sex. So, therefore, we shouldn't avoid the subject. Rather, we should seek to learn what God says about it, led by the Bible. Now, of course, what the Bible says about sex and what British culture says about sex is hugely different. There's a huge, vast gap between the two. Our society effectively regards sex as everything and nothing. Everything because our culture believes that you cannot live a happy and fulfilled life without sex. Our culture says you have to have sex to be happy. can't be happy without it. It's everything. But also our culture treats sex as nothing because why does it even matter who you have sex with? So our society says sex is everything and yet it's nothing. But the Bible says sex is not everything. It's not the ultimate source of happiness and satisfaction. It's not the most important thing in life. And it's not nothing either. It matters, the Bible says, who we have sex with. The Bible says sex is sacred. It's spiritual. It's a mystery. It, it contains transcendence. And also, the Bible says that sex is a good gift from God, one to be valued and protected. One Bible teacher I heard years ago put it like this, and I mention this because it really stuck in my head and helped me understand the balanced view that the Bible has about sex. The Bible says sex is not gross, sex is not God, sex is good. Society used to regard sex as something gross or disgusting, something to be put up with. Queen Victoria famously instructed the Christian ladies in her realm to lie back and think of the empire. But the Bible doesn't regard sex as distasteful or disgusting. It portrays it as something good and wonderful to be enjoyed. And as, as we've just seen, our society tends to elevate sex to almost a godlike level, believing that you can only be complete and fulfilled and happy if you're having lots of sex. Films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and TV shows like Love Island subscribe to this view. But the Bible does not regard sex as the thing which will give you ultimate happiness. Instead, it views it as a good gift from God which humanity is to enjoy. And we see this in the Bible. God created Adam and Eve and instructed them to go and have lots of sex. It was his idea. He invented it. And he described sex as very good. Before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. They could have sex freely without any inhibition or shame or guilt or anything like that. God wanted them to enjoy it. 
And although, of course, sex was affected when sin entered the world, the Bible still views something, sex as something in the right context to be celebrated and enjoyed, something good. In the book of Proverbs, the wise father says to his son, may your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you be ever intoxicated with her love, Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. And in the New Testament, in Hebrews 13, verse 4, we read, marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, the Apostle Paul tells Christian husbands and wives to have sex regularly. Sex within marriage is good, it's a pure and a beautiful thing, and should be esteemed and valued. Canadian pastor Paul Carter puts it like this, sex between a husband and wife is never a cause for shame. It should be honoured, cherished, and enjoyed as the gift and the good that it is. Thanks be to God. It's a good summary of what the Bible says about sex. One of the um, problems of believing that sex is the most important thing is that this belief makes sex the foundation of romantic relationships and marriage. But the Bible says sex is good, not foundational. And we can illustrate that with these boxes that I have on the stage here. So if I just put this table here... And I have these boxes here to illustrate how sex is not foundational. Hopefully you can see them at the back there. This is God's plan for romantic relationships leading to marriage. So he says that the foundation, the big, strong, firm foundation is covenant commitment. The man and the woman who are married commit themselves to one another with a covenant, with promises. I promise to stay with you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and so on. And another hugely important firm foundation built on that is sacrificial love, as we were thinking about earlier. Not just any kind of love, not selfish love, or I want to be loved, but I will give myself to you. That kind of love. That's the highest form of love. And then, sex is the good gift from God that's on the top, the nice bit on the top. And that's a strong foundation. But our culture turns it the wrong way round. Our culture tends to do this. It says, sex is the most important thing. You should start off with sex in a relationship. It's really important that you have good sex and you're sexually compatible. So it puts it as the foundation. And then after that, it adds the love, and then after that, finally, if you ever get around to it, the marriage and the commitment of marriage. But there's a problem with that. When pressure comes and stress comes, the foundation doesn't hold. It's not strong enough. Sex is good, but it's not strong enough to be foundational. So what God wants... So I hope that didn't hit you, Joe, did it? No, I should have planned that better. What God wants is for this to be the foundation, followed by the sacrificial love, because 
if in a relationship illness comes or stress comes or old age comes or accident happens and the sex is damaged or disappears completely even, the foundation is still strong. The foundation still happens and the relationship is stable and the couple who are married can still be fulfilled and happy in that relationship. If we say that sex is the most important thing, then we'll make it foundational. But it's not designed to be the foundation. God's plan is that covenant commitment is the foundation. Another way that society's beliefs about sex completely differ from what the Bible teaches is that the Bible confines sex to marriage. The right and only place for sex, according to God, is within a marriage between one woman and one man. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, increase in number, have sex, because they were married. Because they were in that covenant commitment intimacy of marriage. And in Genesis 2.24, which is so foundational for this series and for marriage and for sex, we see two descriptors of marriage. United and one flesh. Now, what do they mean? Well, they refer to a few things. We're just going to go over um, what we learned in the previous two sermons about marriage at this point, because it's really important because it's so foundational. So what does it mean, um, united in one flesh? Well, first of all, it means making a new family. That's a really important aspect. It also refers to the closeness and the togetherness, the unity, the oneness, the harmony, the synthesis of marriage. And it refers to the giving of yourself to the other, the, the making someone else the priority in the marriage relationship. It also refers to the counterbalancing of each other's strengths and weaknesses. And it also refers to sex, the physical, emotional, joyful joining of the flesh in sexual union. God designed marriage and proclaimed that sex is a part of marriage and sex is only for marriage. And this is affirmed right through the Bible. It's it's in the foundational chapters right at the beginning, but all through the Bible, passages such as Proverbs 5, 15 to 18. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. And 1 Corinthians 7 too, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. That's God's plan for sex. It's for marriage only. And therefore, God's plan for sex is that it's to be heterosexual sex, because his plan for marriage is heterosexual marriage. God deliberately, with purpose, designed marriage to be between male and female. In Genesis 2, right at creation, Adam, male, is given Eve, female. And Eve is described as a suitable helper. Now, 
the Hebrew word for helper, as, we, as you may remember, it's used in the Old Testament and it almost always refers to military help and God helping Israel. God is repeatedly called Israel's helper, this same word that's used in Genesis. So the term certainly doesn't imply any inferiority or weakness. It's actually the opposite. It describes the one who is needed. Adam can't do it without Eve. That's, that's what it's saying here. But Eve isn't just a helper. She is a suitable helper. Now, the Hebrew word for suitable is a compound word, which means as opposite him or like against him. It's a, it's a word that sounds contradictory. And, and what it means is this. Eve is a suitable helper because she is human. She is as Adam. She is like Adam. But she's also a suitable helper because she is female. She's opposite to him. She's different from him. Together with those differences, they can fulfill God's creation command. Be fruitful and increasing number, fill the earth and subdue it. Alone, they can't do that. Or if there's two of the same, they can't do that. They need their differences. God could have just described Eve as a helper, another human being. But he doesn't. He uses this word suitable, which conveys both her similarity as human and her difference as female. So the biological and sexual differences between male and female have been deliberately designed by God. It's part of his creation plan. They're essential. That's why marriage and sex is heterosexual not homosexual according to God it's a union of other it's a joining of opposite it's a diversity which complements it's a togetherness which can achieve more it's a contrast which is needed a difference which is designed and Jesus affirms that God's plan for marriage and sex is heterosexual. In Matthew 19, 4-6, when Jesus is clarifying and explaining what marriage is, he describes the union of, of man and woman by quoting Genesis 2, 24. He goes back to the foundations. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's what he says. Now, he could have left it at that, but he doesn't. He also quotes Genesis 1.27. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. So by quoting from this verse and repeating for emphasis male and female, Jesus is emphasising that marriage is heterosexual. And notice that when Jesus is talking about marriage, he refers back to creation. Pastor and theologian Andrew Wilson points out that in Genesis 1, the entire structure of creation is made up of complementary pairs, which are distinguished from one another, different from one another, as part of God's creative design process. God's creative work consists of making distinctions, differences between things, separating things, and then they come together to form life and order. So we get light and dark, day and night, 
heaven and earth, land and sea, sun and moon, male and female. Sex mirrors this one-to-one harmony, the, the complementarity, the fit that exists throughout creation. So we don't get life if we have earth above and earth below. That's just like a, some kind of cave, isn't it? Life can't flourish there. And we don't get life if we have sky above and sky below. That's basically like the planet Jupiter, isn't it? A gas giant. We, we can't have, life doesn't thrive there. We get life through having one of each. The sky above producing water, the earth below receiving it and bearing forth life. I'm sure you can see the sexual parallels there, male and female. Heterosexual sex is rooted in God's pattern of creation and that creation of complementary pairs coming together to produce and enable life. So that's God's plan. That's what the Bible says about sex. It's for one man and one woman who are married. But why, maybe you're thinking, why does God restrict it like this? Is he a cosmic killjoy? Is he a celestial spoil sport? Or is he just very old-fashioned and traditional? What's the reason for the restriction? Well, there are a few reasons which we'll go through now. First of all, God restricts sex to marriage because sex is powerful like fire. And we see this in Proverbs 6. It likens sex to fire. Now, fire is very wonderful, isn't it? Uh, but if misused, it will inevitably be very destructive. And it's the same with sex. God knows that. He wants us to be blessed by sex and not hurt by it. Marriage is the protective container, the fireproof container, we might say, for that blessing. Marriage prevents the harm that unbounded and unrestricted sex causes. Things like loveless sex, the trivialization of sex, the hypersexualization of society, adultery, misogyny, pornography, sexually transmitted diseases, sexual violence, prostitution, and so on and so on and so on. We all know about the, the damage that sex can cause when it's not restricted in that way by God. We see God's wisdom here. Limiting sex to an act within marriage promotes the physical and emotional protection of both men and women. In her book, um, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, uh, which is really interesting because she's, she's not a Christian, she's a feminist, uh, her name is Louise Perry, she goes through and she lists the devastating consequences of, the so, of so-called sexual liberation. And then she concludes by saying this. She notes how... Um, um, the sexual revolution was actually a bad thing for human flourishing. And then she says, we need a technology that discourages short-termism in male sexual behaviour, protects the economic interests of mothers, and creates a stable environment for the raising of children. And we do already have such a technology, even if it is old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure. It's called monogamous 
marriage. <laughs> I kind of like that, because she, she's realised all on her own what God knew all along, what God planned all along. Because sex is so powerful, it can cause great damage, especially to the vulnerable. So therefore it needs to be contained. Marriage contains it. Marriage makes it safe, prevents it doing damage and causing hurt. Another reason that God restricts sex to marriage is because sex has a bonding effect on each partner, bringing them closer together. God has designed sex not only for reproduction and pleasure, but also for bonding. When a couple have sex, there's something happening which is deeper than the physical act. They are being bonded together. Emotionally, mentally, psychologically, even spiritually. And we see this bonding or uniting in Genesis 2.24 and also 1 Corinthians 6.15 it's mentioned. Some Christians call this forming soul ties, this uniting together. With sex, one soul is tied to the other. It's a bit like two threads used in, in knitting, being woven and stitched together until they combine to form one unit. That's what happens when two people have sex. So if someone has casual sex with no intention of loving the other person or committing themselves to the other person, then they're forming that bond, knitting their soul to the other, and ripping it apart again, causing themselves and the other person psychological damage. If they keep doing this, they're almost training themselves to ignore that bond that's created by sex. And if they have sex with multiple partners, they're creating and breaking many bonds, making themselves less able to love in a committed, monogamous way. God reserves sex to marriage because of the bonding and the oneness and the uniting which sex produces. It's good for the monogamous married couple, but damaging to the person who has multiple sexual partners. God also restricts sex to marriage to protect us from sexually transmitted diseases or STDs. Now, when God's rules are followed, when sex is confined to marriage only, STDs are dramatically reduced. They decrease. But what we see at the moment in the UK is the opposite. More sex outside marriage means more sexual diseases. <coughs> According to the BBC, England's sexual health services are at breaking point because soaring rates of infections are threatening to just overwhelm the services. Also, syphilis cases reached the highest in any given year since 1948, with gonorrhea the highest since annual records began in 1918. That's the sort of like the hidden side of the sexual revolution. There are over 20 types of STDs. They can cause pain, infertility, heart problems, blindness, and death. Contracting an STD is damaging, not just physically, but emotionally, and can affect future relationships. God knows all this. God loves us. He wants us to be protected from STDs. The 100% safe way to avoid STDs is to only have sex if you're married. That's why God insists 
on sex within marriage only. Another reason God restricts sex to marriage is to protect us from pornography. Pornography is sexual immorality. It's lust. It's sex without love or tenderness or gentleness or relationship. And pornography is widespread. Half of all UK adults watch porn, according to an Ofcom report recently. According to a survey by Christianity magazine, 75% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women view porn on an ongoing basis. And pornography is extremely damaging to human beings. An article in Christianity magazine called Porn's Dirty Secret observes that far from being willing performers choosing to earn a living doing pornography, many of the girls who are viewed over and over again on porn sites are victims of rape, trafficking or coercion. It goes on to say, last year 22 women and girls successfully sued a porn company for tricking its victims by offering modelling jobs, then coerced them into shooting porn videos instead. And the company's owner is now on the FBI's most wanted list. Actress and model Pamela Anderson, again a non-Christian who's realised how damaging porn is, says porn has a corrosive effect on a man's soul and on his ability to function as husband and by extension as a father. NFL linebacker turned actor Terry Crews Again, another non-Christian, to realise this, says, and we ought to get worried if non-Christians are getting worried, then we ought to really take, take notice. He says, porn changes the way you think about people. People become objects. People become body parts. They become things to be used rather than people to be loved. Fight the New Drug, a charity which aims to stand against the harm that pornography causes, notes that at least one in three porn videos show sexual violence or aggression. It notes that exploitation and trafficking are common experiences in the porn industry. And there's virtually no way of guaranteeing that pornographic consent, uh, content sorry, is consensual. Porn is incredibly damaging to us as as individuals and as a society. By restricting sex to marriage and putting porn in the category of something wrong, something that is sexually immoral, God protects humans from the harmful effects of pornography. He cares for us. He wants the best for us. He knows how damaging porn is. Another reason that God confines sex to marriage is that marriage restricts men and protects women. The so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s in the UK has resulted in a society in which the unrestricted desires of men often objectify and harm women. We've gone backwards, not forwards. The Me Too movement showed us that when it comes to a liberal view of sex, Women are the losers who end up being mistreated by men. Our society is actually becoming increasingly the, the Greco-Roman society of the first century, where attitudes on sex meant that men were pretty much unrestricted and women got hurt and used and abused. 
But writing into that very same society, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 and 4, restricts men and protects women. He's saying this is God's sexual ethics. Um, and, and it's that passage there. And I want to read out what one Bible commentator says. The marked mutuality of Paul's comments, that the husband has authority over his wife's body and she has authority over his, was, however, revolutionary in the ancient world where patriarchy was the norm. So th these verses would have been absolutely shocking and revolutionary in that society. For the husband to have authority over his wife's body was nothing special. But Paul's following statement affirming the reverse, that the husband does not have his authority over his own body but the wife does, clearly pointed to a radical and unprecedented restriction on the husband's sexual freedom. Because in Greco-Roman society, the husband could pretty much do what he wanted. It was accepted, go to a brothel, fine, have a mistress, fine, doesn't really matter. It was awful. But Paul is restricting that, saying, no, that's not God's plan. It communicates, continuing the quote, negatively, his obligation to refrain from engaging in sexual relations with anyone other than his wife, and positively, his obligation to fulfill his marital duty to provide his wife with sexual pleasure and satisfaction. I've heard it said that when we talk about the sexual revolution of the 1950s and 60s, the greater sexual revolution was the 50s and 60s, <laughs> the first century, because Marital sex being mutual was just unheard of. It was revolutionary. Um, it liberated women because it restricted men and gave women protection and rights within marriage. God confined sex to marriage to rein in the unbridled sinful desire of men, thus preventing women getting harmed. Finally, God restricts sex to marriage so that sex is the best it can be. As we saw when we used uh, uh, our foundational, um, uh, really important aspect of marriage is love. That's what marriage is all about, isn't it? And we read that, didn't we? Expressed in poetic form, romantic form, in Song of Songs, chapter 1, and the whole book's about that. But marriage isn't about any old kind of love. Marriage is about sacrificial love. It's built on the foundation of a love that's committed to the other. It says, I will keep loving you, come what may. I will keep serving you, even if life is hard. I promise to do that. And sex that arises from that kind of love, from the highest, greatest, noblest kind of love, that's the best sex. It's sex which comes from a place of deep trust enhanced by a continual growth of understanding the partner. Sex in which each partner is concerned about pursuing their spouse's sexual desires rather than their own. It's sex which is an expression of faithful, loyal, devoted, committed love. Marriage is all these things and more and that's why God has designed sex to be within marriage. I'd like us to finish where we started. And that is to remind ourselves 
that whilst sex is a good gift from God, it's not ultimate. A person can live a blessed, happy, valuable, meaningful, God-glorifying life without ever having sex with anyone. Despite what all the Bible says, despite of all the Bible says in support and celebration of sex, the Bible also makes it very clear that you can be fully and entirely human without ever having sex. Jesus affirmed the value of singleness and celibacy in his teaching in Matthew 19, verse 12. He elevated the role of unmarried single life to be honourable and meaningful and valuable and significant and enabling people to contribute greatly to the kingdom of God. So did Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7 saying he wished there were more single people in God's kingdom. You see, our happiness and satisfaction does not depend on sex. Sex is a wonderful thing, an amazing thing from God, but it's not a God thing. We shouldn't elevate it to the level of uh, God himself. It's not supreme. Actually, sex is a signpost. It is, to quote Andrew Wilson again, a shadow, a parable, a silhouette, whose true fulfilment is found in the love that God has for his people. It is a signpost that makes it mysterious, meaningful and transcendent. It is but a glimpse of a relationship, a union and a happiness that are grander and deeper than our wildest imagining. So contrary to what society teaches us, whilst sex is nice, it's not necessary. You can flourish and experience happiness and fulfilment without sex. You can be a whole person, a normal person, a balanced person, a fully functional person, and not have sex. Because sex is the trailer, not the movie. It points to something better than itself, as this video that we're going to watch now from Living Out shows us. A trailer at the cinema has been designed to make you want to enjoy the film it advertises. It gives you a foretaste of a future reality that could be yours if you watch the film. Sex and marriage have been designed to make you want to enjoy the future they advertise. They give you a foretaste of a future reality that could be yours if you follow Jesus. Any joy in sex and marriage now is just a trailer for the future joy all Christians will experience united, married to God's son Jesus forever. So. If you get to enjoy sex and marriage now, you're just enjoying the trailer. If you don't enjoy sex and marriage now, you're just missing the trailer. All who follow Jesus will get to enjoy the real thing. I think that puts it really well, doesn't it? And gives us hope. Society says you have to have a romantic relationship and lots of sex and good sex in order to be happy. The Bible says it's a trailer pointing to something greater. You don't need it to have a meaningful life. I think this is so countercultural that we may struggle to believe it because we've been preached that, haven't we? Especially in the UK for the last 40 years or so. 
uh, that, that you need sex to be a whole person. But the Bible says sex is good, singleness is good, and celibacy is good as well. We are, I often think, products of our Western hypersexualized culture. So we may struggle to accept this is true, but it is. Just think about it. We are living right now in the most sexually saturated culture in the history of humankind. We are. We really are. And this has a massive effect on our minds and on how we understand what sex is. We're so used to being told, we're so used to being communicated on the internet, in Hollywood, on social media and everywhere, that sex is ultimate, that we can hardly comprehend anything different. But the Bible is different. The Bible values singleness as much as marriage and celibacy as much as sex. Because whilst sex is something good, it's that trailer pointing to something better, that foretaste of reality, which will be ultimate, which will fulfill us completely, which will satisfy us totally. And that's the reality in the future of being in the presence of God and enjoying a relationship with him unaffected by sin and selfishness. Let's just pause now to reflect and think about what we've heard and then we'll move into communion.